What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast again. And if it's your first time, do me a favor, click the subscribe button on whatever platform it is that you're listening on. Click that five-star review and share this episode with a friend. It would mean a lot and it's the best way to support the show so that others can find it as well. Today's episode is uh, a musical-based episode. And no, I'm not playing any instruments, but my guest is a drummer who actually, I mean, he's a, he's a musician is really what I should call him and, and really a producer and a theorist and a marketer. He's got a really cool Instagram page. Uh, it's called at Timbo from Kino. And uh, I've came across this page from a buddy, shout out John Sampson, uh, who's a drummer. And uh, we trade messages all the time about music. And he sent me a cool video of this guy playing Guns N' Roses Welcome to the Jungle at different speeds and kind of what they sounded like faster and slower. Um, I was checking this guy out and I'm like, man, he's, he's funny as hell. He's got a crazy personality and he's a really, really good drummer. And as somebody who appreciates music, I wanted to have Tim on to talk with him about where his musical passion comes from and why he's kind of chosen and what's been beneficial about choosing the path from a marketing perspective. And it's uh, a really fun conversation. We talked a lot about drums and music and his inspirations and musical influences and um, really how he's now monetizing his skills in this craft. So uh, really fun episode. I really appreciated Tim taking some time to come on here. And uh, I hope you guys go and check out his page, especially if you're into music, you're going to want to listen to this one. Give it up for my guest, Tim Baltus. But before we enjoy this episode, a quick shout out, as always, to the sponsor of the show, Action Specialty Roast Coffee and Natural Supplements. Listen, you've already heard me say it, and if you've tried it, you know, Action's Specialty Roast Coffee is by far the best tasting coffee you will find on the market. It has no preservatives, no insecticides, no pesticides or artificial sugars. It's just straight, good, clean coffee, and it's sourced from Guatemala on the side of a volcano from a family farm. And then from there, we roast it fresh on demand and ship it directly to your doorstep. But if you didn't know, in addition to the best specialty roast coffee on the market, Action also has supercharged natural supplements for things like inflammation reduction, joint mobility, fat loss, and just general health and well-being. But go to drinkaction.com, that's action with a K, code word curious, 20% off on subscriptions, and enjoy this episode. But um, no, uh, that's kind of where I came across and appreciate you being here. Yeah, yeah, that video was. Um, I think you're thinking of um, "Welcome to the Jungle" by Guns N' Roses. Yeah, that's which makes it makes sense because I see the two flame top LPs in the back. I'm like, all right, we got a Slash fan right here, so I'm I'm into it. That's awesome. Yeah, and as far as you know, it's it's really interesting. Social media is one of those things where you can see, you know, ten percent of someone and think like, okay, well they must this must be what they do for a living, and you know, session drumming is is one part of it, but, um, you know, I sell drumless tracks, I teach, I consult uh, with drummers, uh, drum retailers, drum distributors, and drum manufacturers, 
you know, I, I do all sorts of stuff. And I think that's kind of, you know, something that a lot of folks who aren't musicians, like they, they don't know, you know, I think some people, most people mm. still think, okay, you're a professional musician, like, all right, you're the live guy, or you're the studio guy. Well, no, like, to make it work now, especially after through and after COVID, it's like, uh, you got to have about a thousand different income streams. And most of them are a combination of several skills with the music involved too. Where did your passion from music originate from? Uh, I mean, so I've been, I've been playing since I was eight, took up piano at eight. Uh, and then I was hanging out with a bunch of kids I went to church with and, uh, and they were like, let's start a punk rock band. And, and I was like, all right. So, you know, my buddy shows up with his drum kit another buddy shows up with his guitar and his guitar amp. Another guy's going to sing. And then I show up with a keyboard and they say, you, you can't play keyboard in a punk rock band. So I, I went home and I begged my mom for a bass guitar. And uh, so I picked up bass at 12, uh, did that thing, uh, guitar at 13. Uh, then now I'm 15 and I'm um, hanging out with a new group of guys. And at that point, you know, they're like, well, you know, we can, we got a guitar player, we got a bass player, we got a vocalist. Uh, Tim, you can kind of play drums. Why don't you get a drum set and, and then you can play drums with us. So just out of necessity, again, I, uh, I switched instruments. And what was so interesting is, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I always had a passion for drums. And I don't think I, you know, ever fully realized that until, you know, that point. You know, I'd be the kid where if I was playing, you know, bass in a band, well, the second the drummer went upstairs to get a glass of water, oh, I'm, run, I'm running behind his drum set and I'm going to try to play a beat on it, you know. And that was just about every freaking band I was in. I always wanted to be the kid who was behind the drum kit. So the passion has always been drums. And it just took me a long time to figure that out. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm turning uh, 32 in a month. So I've been playing drums now for 17 years and uh, loving every, every minute of it still. Do you think that's more common with drums than other instruments because the barrier to being able to play them is a little bit more? You have to go and buy a full kit and then mom and dad have to be able to put up with the noise from the basement or the garage as opposed to even an electric guitar. I mean, I can pull these off the wall and just sit around and pick at it and it's really not bothering anybody. And I can lose myself in that drumming seems a little bit more, you know, you, you've got to really kind of, you, you're committing to it. Right. And that, is that part of it? hundred percent. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think my, my, my ma wanted to support me in, in drums, but so one thing I did when, when I was in fifth grade is, you know, the fourth kid or fourth grade kids could do orchestra. So I played cello for a year and I didn't want to play cello fifth grade you could start band and so i was like all right drums at that point even but then they give you this cheapy little pr pla plastic practice pad you know so you're clickety clanking on that and then you got this little glockenspiel xylophone looking thing it's just like this isn't drum set i can't what the heck am i gonna do with this crap so uh yeah the barrier to entry is is much higher you know whether it's uh from the the noise end of things the the price of a drum set just keeps going up and up and up and up and up um and 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 on the player side as a kid you know if if you have you know a parent who wants you to go through formal education oh well, now you got to go through all sorts of hoops 
to to play on the freaking drum set that you want to play on so it's yeah i think it's it's really hard and it's only getting harder you know to to get kids uh or to to be in a situation as a child where you can start on drum set Mm -hmm. no it's really so true so are you from middle america chicago i am uh just north of chicago i'm right in between chicago and milwaukee in uh, kenosha wisconsin okay gotcha gotcha i um I had family that lived in Grays Lake, Illinois. Oh yeah. For a few years, I spent a couple of summers out there. Um, so musical style, you were, I guess when you were in your teens, kind of getting into bands, punk rock, like early two thousands. Yeah. I mean, so I started going to shows uh, in 2000 when I was 10 years old mm-hmm. and you know, at that point, uh, punk, pop punk, ska, you know, these were the, this was the music of, of the Midwest. Uh, and being outside of Chicago, we had bands like uh, Cap and Jazz, anything that Kinsella Brothers did. We had Alkaline Trio, yeah. Lawrence Arms, uh, Mainstream, you know, you get so far as to get into like Smashing Pumpkins. Um, and then in Milwaukee, we had bands like the promise ring, you know, a lot of this kind of Midwest emo type of sound, um, and a lot of smaller bands, regional bands, and all of these were, you know, quintessential to me kind of, uh, figuring out where I fit musically among everyone. So yeah, it's, it was, it was a really interesting time to grow up because, you know, my parents got divorced when I was a kid. So it'd be like, all right, you know, instead of a, a babysitter, you know, you can just, I was old enough where you can just throw me out of the van at a punk rock show and that'll take care of me for the evening. And it was awesome. Cause there was a punk rock show probably four or five nights a week at that point for years um, when I was growing up. So it was just, it was such an interesting uh, ground for cutting my teeth, both as a music listener and as a musician. Mm-hmm. No, it's really interesting. Did you have, interest in any other type of music or is is that something that came after because i saw i mean you you incorporate a lot of phil collins into what you're doing and so i'm like (laughs) you seem like you're a lot more i didn't realize you were 32 like you're you seem like you have a much more you know you're a little bit more mature in your musical taste than a lot of people that would be early 30s and I would imagine part of that is because you've just really immersed yourself in this from every different directions. You appreciate musicianship and, and all of that, but is that something that came as you continue to grow or did you always have like that old soul? I mean, I was always brought up on just variety period. Like my dad had a giant cassette tape collection and then a giant CD collection that he would always pull from. And it was, you know, everything from, Bruce Springsteen to Radiohead to Flo Rida to, you know, whatever you can imagine he had in his collection. And then my mom, you know, loved classics, you know, so like it'd be anything from like Tracy Chapman to like uh, a lot of blues. Uh, we, we grew up seeing like Buddy Guy at Ravinia, which is a big outdoor concert venue in Chicago, B.B. Uh, King, um, Elvis Costello. So like all over the place you know, from both parents growing up and that kind of influenced me. And I, I dove into these genres as I grew up, you know, like the punk rock stuff, punk rock turned into like hardcore punk rock, which turned into uh, late two thousands metal core and then death core and death metal. And, and then, you know, and then you grow up and then you, you come right back to the classics. So 
you know, that's kind of how that whole progression went, but it was always that I'm always going to span, you know, uh, Phil Collins to the loudest, most crazy music you've ever heard in your life. You know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I've that's, I've always been that way. I mean, to your point, it always does come full circle a little bit. I was, I'm a couple of years older than you. I'll be 35 in January. So, but I think it, kind of the same type of musical influences. And I'm trying to think like when I got to high school, it was like 2001, it kind of started to shift for me as well too, more into like harder punk and then new metal. And that kind of like took over for me for a while. And then as I got out of college, I kind of circled back more like uh, probably festival music and then, uh, you know, back to classic rock, which is probably what I listen to more than anything today. You know, it's just any type of good classic rock. Um, been on a Leonard Skinner kick lately. I watched the documentary, um, If I Leave Here Tomorrow on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen yeah. it or not. But it, not yet. Oh, my God. I mean, it's I forgot how many great songs Skinner had. And I think maybe this is a great way to kind of bridge into what you do from a, a studio and session and even lessons and really teaching um, the fundamentals and probably music theory and things of that nature. But I'm such, I mean, you met, you nailed it, right? I'm a huge slash fan, Hendrix, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Kenny Wayne Shepard, Gary Clark Jr. is a, a one that I'm really big on lately. And there's an improvisation to how they all play. I've, I've been able to see slash live handful of times, especially recently and every time he plays, you know, uh, Night Train solo, it's, it's just got a small, slight variation, which just makes it so unique to that night. And I appreciate that. But then the flip side of that with Skinner was like they rehearsed ruthlessly to the point where every note was predetermined and it was no improv improvisation during the live shows. And I think when you can nail it that perfectly, there's a beauty about that as well, too. And that seems to be a little bit more from like the production side, maybe, you know, session stuff. If you're doing, I don't know if you've ever done things on television shows or movies, but I would imagine it's kind of the same thing. It's like, here's what you're going to play. You're going to play it exactly as it appears here. And the final product will be perfectly polished and exactly as we expect. You'd be surprised. You know, most of the TV movie, any type of soundtrack, live Disney show type soundtrack, all these things that, that I typically get hired for, um, people are hiring me to put forth my voice. So like, uh, and, and this is kind of how the whole industry works. There's a, there's a great podcast out there with Gunnar Olson, who's a session guy out in New York. And I love this story where he, he goes to do a Bruce Springsteen session. He's hanging out with the producer and Bruce comes in and, and they say, all right, here's the, here's the Matt Chamberlain take. And Matt played with uh, uh, everyone from, um, Tori Amos to uh, he was touring with um, what's that the Soundgarden oh, for wow. a while at the end there uh, and then there was um, Steve Jordan who plays with John Mayer and uh, a couple other famous guys but it's like you know all these incredibly famous drummers and they paid all this money to have all these different takes because they're looking for what's the flavor that fits the song and so the hiring process even at you know my little level is just hey, I want to hire you because I want you to do your thing on my track. And, and that's, there's something really beautiful about that because then it's, 
you know, it lets me speak the way I want to speak musically. And uh, it makes the experience more enjoyable for me. And oftentimes for the clients, it makes it really enjoyable for them because they have no clue what they're going to be getting in the end. And usually it's, you know, it's something that they, uh, it's beyond their wildest dreams usually because it's like, oh, I didn't even think to do that or, you know. So it's, there's something really special uh, about not just playing a piece as it's programmed or as it's written, but rather bringing an element of improvisation uh, to either setting, a live setting or a recording setting. Yeah, that, that, that blows my mind. I would have thought it was completely the opposite. To your point, it's, but it makes me feel so much better because the artistic ability is allowed to flow. And it, after you explain that, it makes way more sense, actually, as I think about it. It's like, allow the, allow the experts to really add their craft, right? So it's uh, interesting. No, I appreciate yeah. it. As far as like musical influences from the drumming perspective, is there anybody in particular that you really modeled your playing after, or did you kind of find obviously probably a lot from everybody, but anybody in particular? You know, I, I really do. I pull from so many different people, you know, um, uh, one of the main ones is somebody that it's nobody's ever heard of is, uh, especially in the U S is this guy, Jason Tate, T A I T played in a band called the weaker thans. And uh, they were like a big alt country, post-punky kind of rock band from uh, Winnipeg up in Manitoba, Canada. And they did really well in Canada, uh, had decent success here in the States. But what's really cool about this drummer, Jason, is he's the kind of guy who takes into account his uh, sound source. So like the instrument itself, uh, understanding you know, well, I think I should use like a high pitched snare drum on this song and like a low pitched woody crazy sounding thing here. And oh, maybe I guess I'll hit a, uh, you know, half full beer bottle on this song because that sounds appropriate. And then he understands, you know, the other side of it too, which is like, um, well, you know, I, production wise, maybe we need to use this certain type of miking technique or whatever. But he, he always knew how to get the, the sound source the extra mile through production to emote a certain way, which is something I teach my students. You know, I generally, you know, I'll teach fundamentals and I have taught fundamentals for years, but what's really fun is when you get to a point where you have a, a intermediate player or an expert player who then wants to get into recording because as much as a, a player has a voice on the instrument, just playing the instrument, you know, you kind of have that signature sound just like slash has a signature sound to the way he plays he also has a signature sound to his uh his kind of sound aesthetic if you will so drummers we have that tenfold because we we don't just have one microphone on one sound source like a guitar amp or something we got like a bajillion you know pieces that got to get mic'd up and then we also have to take into account uh the room so we also have to mic a room because what we hear with our ears is not just drums but drums in a room so there's so many different variables that come in there and it's these little tweaks you know and and touches that we have uh both from our microphones and where we put our microphones in our room and our drums that now our voice becomes such a complicated process and creating but when, once we get it there it, it has such a unique fingerprint um and, and, and cre helping people create that fingerprint and helping myself, uh, you know, develop my own fingerprint in that way has just been, that's been a joy. It's a huge joy to do that. 
is there anybody that's doing it better today than others from your perspective? And not not that they're better than others, but really that just speak to you the way that, you know, a, a Les Paul just running straight through a Marshall amp kind of does for me. For sure. Um, I, I, you know, a lot of people always point to uh, Aaron Sterling, who he's, he's another guy who's played with like John Mayer. He's played on a lot of Taylor Swift stuff. And man, that guy, um, A, he's funny. And B, he does get some incredible drum sounds. Um, you know, so much more often, you know, I find myself inspired by like non-musical stuff. So like uh, with my, my students, I always like to talk about this idea of a balance between creation and consumption. So as a creative, whatever your medium is, uh, you know, if you're a painter, you might go and paint for hours and hours. If you're a drummer, you might go drum for hours and hours. And as you're having creative output, think of it like a gas tank. Well, now you're emptying the tank slowly and slowly and slowly. And you might get to a point where you feel burnt out because you just, you know, you did too much. You, you had too much creative output without filling the tank back up. And the way that I look at, you know, what is the fuel for our creation, it's consumption. So as a drummer, well, the obvious thing would be to consume music and, you know, listen to what, what are other drummers doing? What are other producers doing? What are other artists, you know, doing generally? Um, and I do that, but I also like, it's gonna, it might sound silly, but like, I find inspiration in comedy, you know, comedy is so much about rhythm. Mm. And so we can take from that and how a comedian uh, delivers a joke where they're inserting space, where they're not, the, the general rhythm of a joke, like all these sorts of things we can take from that. And we can take similar, similar uh, we can create, I guess, uh, more inspiration and fill that gas tank simply by watching movies, you know, like going to an art museum, going to a, the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago and looking at starfish, you know, I don't know, you know, but these, any, ethereal experience or, or something more concrete in a you know creative consumption type of type of deal like any of these things are the things that a fill me back up to to create again and b in some roundabout way inspire me just as much as music might well it makes sense right because music can be tied on the other side like you you relate music to experiences but i think it kind of can go the opposite where you'll have an experience and you can kind of equate that to a certain vibe from music. Right. And the gas tank analogy, hundred percent, I get that. It's, it's amazing what, you know, emotionally can, can fuel you because really any of these consumption things, it's an emotional thing generally more than anything that you're, you're getting from this happy, sad or otherwise. And mm -hmm. yeah, one story, I don't think I've ever told this at all, but in public, but yeah, I remember, you know, I don't write a lot of music. And like I said, I grew up playing bass and guitar and, and that sort of thing. I even, I sang in a ska band. I sang really poorly in a ska band. But, uh, you know, when my, my mom's mom passed, uh, I remember it was like, dude, I took like a, a week and just sat in my room with a guitar and, you know, like guitar rig or whatever. And, and just, um, I cranked out five, six, seven songs, full songs, just out of, just out of nowhere. And uh, I really haven't written much, you know, I guess real music. I do the drumless track thing loops, but like real music, I haven't written much ever since, but it was that one event that was like, you know, really just brought something fully realized out of me to process those emotions, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm.
some of the greatest albums ever written come from some very difficult times that people have worked themselves through. There's, yeah. there's a reason for that. I want to go back because you talked about how it's not just about the sounds that the drums make. And, you know, I, I would love to get into even, I would imagine this, the sticks that you're using and the, the weight of the sticks and just all of, all of those things, the same way that I can tell if somebody's using a heavy pick or a thin pick or the gauge strings that they're, they're using makes a difference if you have an ear that's used to the different changes. Right. Um, but I was thinking too, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody when that album was recorded, I think one of the greatest parts of that album is how much they did outside of just the traditional music. And the, the movie kind of touches a little bit on that and it's probably different than it really was or sensationalized, but just creating sounds on the album that didn't just come from hitting a drum, but were creative, but they still add to the music. It's still part of the music. And I love stripped down, raw, three-piece bands, Alkaline Trio, you know, but that aspect of not just settling for that and saying, hey, what else can we add that has an audio effect? You know, there's something that's really going to resonate with the people that are listening. And even if it's marbles on the top of a timpani drum, like that's, if it creates a sound that we're desiring or we're looking for, that's all that matters. I remember, man, I'll tell you, I remember I did a session for a dude over in Malaysia once and uh, it had drum set and then it needed this, I needed something. So I, uh, <laughs> I went to this, this store that just sells surplus and they had uh, stainless steel centrifuges for like industrial Keurig coffee makers. And, and so, you know, I'm picking, it looks like a bell kind of looks like this bell thing and it's made out of stainless. So I, I pick it up and I, flick it and it's like oh that resonates really nicely so i bought like probably probably like a dozen and a half of these freaking coffee maker parts i brought them home and then i grab a bunch of hammers that i have laying around and i hammer you know them to create like a pitched set of six and then i i hung them up with twine and i use you know like a felt almost like timpani mallets and I just kind of hit them in rhythm with this kind of melodic pattern. And it was like one of the coolest things I felt like I ever created, you know, in my drumming career. And, you know, who would have thought it's freaking coffee parts or coffee maker parts I found in a bin, you know? But isn't that how every instrument's probably ever been created? If you really think about it, right? It's like the, the first guitar, somebody had to take things that were already in existence and create something to create a new sound. And so I think there's fewer opportunities to do that because we've probably covered a lot of ground with that, but you know, a hundred years from now, who, who's to say something couldn't be created today from coffee maker parts. That's going to be a new instrument that's used on all the music that's created. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of cool. True. That's, that's the beautiful thing about like the digital sphere too, is like now we have, you know, zeros and ones to play around with and, you got some really, really creative people that are coming up with some of the most wild sounding percussive instruments and synthesizers like keyboard type instruments that you can just plug and play on your computer, no hardware needed. And uh, uh, it's just, whether it's a physical instrument or a digital instrument, it's just, yeah, the possibilities are endless. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really curious to, to hear what music sounds like right before I die, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, it's so true. 
I was listening to the drumless tracks that you were talking about because that was a concept long time ago when I was playing the guitar that I was like, man, I wish that I could put headphones into something that was just like a guitarless track where I could play along with, but we're talking like Walkman type shit, you know, like mid nineties and it just wasn't a possibility. And now there's really cool uh, tablature reading, you know, where it kind of advances through the tabs and plays along, you know, the music minus the guitar, which has been super helpful in learning things that I just don't have the time to sit down and try to like learn the old fashioned way. And now there's YouTube videos and all kinds of cool stuff, but can you get into the importance and maybe the methodology of, of why you create that, how it helps drummers and maybe, you know, things that folks that listen to this could, you know, pick up on that would be beneficial if they were to go down that road? Sure. So I really love the drumless tracks because they can be a tool for just about anything you want. So basically what a drumless track is, is it's kind of like you explained, it's all the elements of a music track, but no drum set. And so now, you know, I mean, for years, I'm sure you remember playing guitar growing up, you probably had a little digital metronome just click clicking away as you're playing. And, and that's good. That's a great tool because now you're getting this internal sense of time. So, you know, you kind of can play at a steady pace with your band or by yourself or whatever. But what that doesn't teach you is, um, and this is most important uh, for drummers, is how do you play in such a way around all these different musical elements, you know, a guitar, a bass, a synthesizer, and maybe a vocal. How do you play around those elements to be the glue of the song rather than something that sticks out like a sore thumb? And so that's kind of the, my favorite use for the drumless tracks is to listen to something fresh. There's like, I think six, 700 of them. And so, you know, you have hundreds of options, click on a random thing and figure out how do I make my drum set sound appropriate in this setting? So it can be a tool for that. It can be a, a fun tool that doesn't feel as boring as a metronome to just practice, you know, little, uh, you know, stickings and rudiments, the little pieces we use to, to drum with. Uh, it can also be a tool for recording. So now you can go beyond just, okay, did I make a drum part that sounds appropriate, but can I record that drum part in such a way and produce that, you know, use the little effects in my computer to make that sound uh, sonically, sound-wise appropriate in this setting. So it's, you can use it for everything. And, you know, I know you mentioned kind of guitar list tracks and that sort of thing that are available on YouTube, but there's actually an app out now and it's awesome. I've been using it for almost the whole year now. It's called Moises. Have you heard of this? I haven't. Moises? Yeah. M-O-I-S-E-S dot A-I is the website. Moises dot A-I. And basically what you do is you take an MP3, upload it into their site. It puts it through software and you can have like, it can turn that one mp3 into five different parts so like i can turn up and down the vocal uh, the synthesizer the bass and the drums and whatever else like it is the craziest software and this becomes to me you know i've been working with the drumless tracks now for years and, and i love them i love them dearly i started making those because they were a tool for me but what's even more fun for me now is using this moises tool because like uh, I was using with a student yesterday, I was talking about um, all I want to do is have some fun by Cheryl Crow. And, and so I tried to cover that song 
and you know you would hope that when you're playing a song it just has a steady tempo across the whole thing so the beat just feels the same the whole time well not the Cheryl Crow song. This one is, all right, we're going to start off here. Then we're going to get fast. Oh, we're going to slow down right here and speed up again. And, you know, so it's a tool to now I have to learn in that whole song, where does it slow down? Where does it speed up? How do I make that drum beat feel uh, consistent the whole time so that that song feels good to a listener? And I happen to be uh, acquaintances with the drummer who played on that track. His name is Michael Urbano. So when I, I posted that video on Instagram of me covering this song, I was like, Michael, how the heck did you pull this off when it was recorded? And, and, and he kind of did the same thing I was, which was you do your best to follow uh, the two main elements in that song. I think he said were the, the vocal and an acoustic guitar because it was kind of, you know, that's the whole basis to it. So he just kind of followed that pattern of slowing down and speeding up and that's how he came to create the original drum part that as we know today feels so good on that song so that's a whole new learning process and that helps you as a studio musician helps you to uh better understand generally how drummers can uh sit with a band because you might work with musicians who like to slow down and speed up and and you can't always control the way they're going to do that so if you can better learn how to flow with a band like that, man, that is a, that is a tool that is worth its weight in gold. That's oh, so cool. When you create these, are you, are you creating the track with drums so that you can build everything else around it? And then after the fact, peeling the drums away, or are you actually making those tracks without the drums? Cause I was listening to them. I'm like, this is impressive, but I don't know how you would create that as a guitar player without like the backbone of the percussion, right? To me, that's always what lays the foundation. And I didn't, I, I assumed that you probably did the drum and then removed it, but am I correct in that? No drums ever. And so the point is wow. ever. <laughs> so, so the point is, is so I, I, when I create those drumless track packs, I'm putting my ear to work in a different way. So in that setting, I'm putting these little loops together and I'm thinking, how would I play this in my head? Does it sound like something that could use some drums? And would those drums sound cool over it? So I'm kind of putting that studio mind to work in a different setting. You know, like if a client sends me a song, that's my first listen is I'm just going to listen and not play anything and say, I think it should be drums here and it should sound like this and that and the other, and maybe drums here and it should sound like this, that and the other. And now with the drumless tracks, I make a little loop and I'm like, all right, does this sound like it could use drums? What would those drums sound like? Would that be fun or cool to play? And if so, all right, cool. I got one in the bank and move on to the next 99 of them that I'm going to create for the pack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, I'm batting over two now. <laughs> that blows, that really does blow my mind. I was like, there's no way that that's, I mean, you must have a, an extreme amount of talent in the production side of things too. Do you leverage any specific, software or are you kind of verse in all all kinds of different things i i do all sorts of things i as far as like a, a recording software i'm a logic guy okay. i like simple um and logic is simple uh i use a lot of different um arturia products which makes like keyboards basically so they have really cool like 60s and 70s sounding keyboards and pianos um and then like i'll pull out my bass or my guitar like in the first couple volumes i'll pull those out and you know, strum along a little pattern to play along with too. So 
yeah, I mean, it's kind of pulling from everything from childhood on out to create what I'm creating now. Mm. So I was kind of thinking back through drummers that have really made impacts on me. <clears throat> Sorry, I got something stuck in my throat. Um, always kind of being like the classic rock guys. But then there was one that really stuck out to me that makes me feel, and I wanted your opinion on this because I've had arguments with people. Um, you know, I think about guys like Bonham and Keith Moon and, you know, Ginger Baker, all these great drummers from rock genres that really resonate with me, but Carter Buford from Dave Matthews band above and beyond. Like I had a time where I was like a DMB fan that kind of post-college, you know, hanging out, drinking beers in the field at the, you know, pavilion set up for a concert. But even as my musical tastes have continued to evolve, I always go back to that guy and I'm just blown away by his musicianship, the, the, the sonic element that he brings, um, just such a full presence, yet very meticulous detail and symbol work and just all these different things. I mean, is this just a example of my narrow understanding of drumming and the players that are out there? And because he's with a big band, it's something that I, you know, see more of, but I mean, where does he rank in the, uh, the landscape of drummers from your perspective? I love Carter. I mean, you're, you're not going to hear me say a bad thing about that dude. Cause man, what a player. And, and he's, he is so different. Cause we think about like, okay, John Bonham's got, you know, five drums and four or five cymbals. And then, you know, you think of all these classic rock guys and generally there's, there's smaller drum sets. Sure. And then you got Carter and it looks like he's about to play like a, a heavy metal show or something. You know, he's got like a ton of drums and a whole rack of cymbals in front of him and cowbells and doodads. And, you know, if you had just seen that kit and never heard the band, you'd think, Oh gosh, this guy's going to overplay the whole set. It's going to be, it's going to be the drummer saying, look at me the whole time. But what's so beautiful is Carter plays these, this ridiculously large drum set in one of the most musically minded ways possible. And what's nice is it gives a, a variety to the kind of sonic qualities of the drum set. You know, you get a lot, a lot of different sounding high highs from the variety of the cymbals. You get a lot of different sounding mid mids from all the, uh, you know, tom toms and some of the cowbells. And then you get some nice low lows from the lowest toms and the kick drums and everything. So like there's, there's so much variety that he can pull from sound wise there. And he does so in a tasteful way, but yeah, I, it, it's, it's, it's different because there's, a ton of sound sources there you know like he could have gone like dream theater like a you know or a rush he could sound like rush yeah. or something and you know but instead he's like i'm gonna sit back and let the music i'm gonna be a, he's a musician before he's a drummer and so yeah yeah you know he's a, mu a musician before he's a drummer and and he's always played that way and I, I i love that about the way he approaches drum set yeah no you make me smile now He's always just been, it just blows my mind. And then it's, you know, the golf gloves and the, it's just that he's just got this unique personality and then matched with all the other great, great musicians. And, you know, I think probably something I'll end up listening to more of now that I'm talking about it, I can kind of like hear the songs in the back of my mind again, but. Um, no, oh, my, my, I hadn't listened to Dave Matthews in a long time and then uh, started dating my partner and it was fall of 2020 and they like love 
DMB. So it was just like, anytime we were on a long drive, we're putting on the DMB playlist. And, and you know, my first thought was like, oh God, Dave Matthews band, like, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years old now. I don't want to listen to that anymore. But then I was like, oh wait, no, no, this is still tight. This is still awesome. <laughs> so I got no qualms about that, man. It's, it's still a good listen all these years later. Yeah, there's some guilty pleasures like that for me too. It's like I'll be flipping through, and I don't even know why it's like guilty pleasure, but um, like even something like Mr. Jones from the Counting Crows. It's like, oh yeah, they went, they went through such a like you were crucified if you like the Counting Crows for a while, and <laughs> as I man, I feel bad because maybe part of it was their own fault. They pushed and wanted. I, I don't know, you know, but I never understood that. You know, it's like man there's just this hatred for them because they got so big so quick. Um, mm. But when their music comes on, I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm not changing it right away. You know what I mean? I, you know, I think we're, we're at a time now, or at least we've been at a time where like so many people would just poo poo all that nineties stuff. And, and like before I did the Phil Collins stuff, you know, like, uh, I don't know, I guess this was probably year, year and a half ago, I was doing a lot of the, um, all the nineties hits blues traveler counting crows third eye blind uh what's that tonic yeah tonic Remember tonic like, yeah oh yeah all that stuff because those are those are the cassette tapes my dad had exactly. so like you know even though i thought you know i didn't know how it was going to be received online for me to start playing all this old crap but what was so it was such a pleasant surprise is once i started posting those 90s videos everyone was like wow like these songs were bangers. Like these were great songs. So it's, it's nice that like, yeah, at least people didn't, you know, scream and unfollow me, you know, people still <laughs> like all that music. Yeah. I wonder what that, what, like the nineties are like a lost generation of music. And there's a lot of good tunes that, that came out of the nineties. Do you remember uh, ugly kid, Joe? No, oh, what is that? Okay. You got to go check out ugly. Kid. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that in my search yeah. right now. So they, um, <laughs> They did a rendition of Cats in the Cradle. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they're kind of like, uh, I, I think it's 90s. I th yeah, I'm almost positive it's 90s. But my dad was in a band um, when I was late grade school into middle school. And uh, they, they played originals and covers as well. But, I mean, they played everything from Goo Goo Dolls to Tesla to... Um, geez, ACDC to uh, Dio. I mean, they played all kinds of different stuff. And uh, that was always one that Ugly Kid Joe, it was, uh, it was really good music. Kind of awesome. lost. Well, I guess people didn't hear of them. Yeah, well, yeah, I never heard that name. So I, they're in my search bar now. So I'm going <laughs> to check that out after we talk for sure. Oh, cool. Um, so where can everybody find what you're doing, the, the drumless tracks, the lessons, like if someone's listening to this and they're interested to get in touch with you, are you accepting students? Like what's that process like? Yep. So I do. Um, uh, I'm, I'm always happy to speak on the phone or do a quick zoom to talk about the way my lessons work. Generally what I'm focusing on are uh, intermediate, intermediate to expert players. Um, but I, I'll teach beginners too. And uh, I'll teach drumming recording drums and drum centric social media strategy and marketing. Um, and uh, you can find me the hub for everything is really my Instagram, which is Timbo from Kino, T-I-M-B-O from K-E-N-O. And uh, otherwise timbaltus.com 
T-I-M-B-A-L-T-E-S.com. And uh, yeah, you can find me, shoot me an email, shoot me a text, shoot me a picture of your cute uh, poodle, you know, whatever you want to do. I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The one thing I was actually I had written down because it just, it was like, what made me realize you must have a wild personality is I'm like scrolling through these cool videos, by the way, if you haven't checked out the Instagram, go check it out because every video, it's not only like great drumming, but there's personality and kind of like a comic element to some of it. But the candy reviews, where does that come from? Because I'm like going through and you've got like Cadbury chocolate bars and you're, you're talking about, is it like an actual sponsorship that you had? And that was a creative way to to do advertising for them or like what's the deal it's the most bizarre thing this whole food thing is the most bizarre thing that's ever happened in my life so i think i started the food reviews with uh with original new york seltzer you ever heard of that i haven't no it's like it's basically soda without caffeine in it and you get it in this little glass bottle and they had about eight flavors at the grocery store and i thought this could be kind of funny if I just went on live and I, when I'm on Instagram, like doing food reviews or I I do karaoke videos. And when I do those sorts of things, like I put on this really loud Wisconsin accent. So I, I go on with this, you know, bottle of seltzer water and I'm like, all right, we're going to taste the root beer seltzer water, you know, and people just got a kick out of it. And so then some guy from uh, Philadelphia he sent me a DM at first and he's like, Hey man, next time you're out in Philadelphia, let me buy you a cheesesteak. And I was like, all right, cool. You know, it's awesome. And, uh, and then a couple of weeks later, he's like, nah, let me send you a box of stuff from Philadelphia and you can try it. And like, I don't know, do whatever you want. So that was, I think the first thing was just the giant box of food from Philadelphia that I did food reviews on, which then spiraled into like, there was a cotton candy company in Texas that sent me, I'm not kidding, like 20 freaking bags of cotton candy to my house to taste insane and i made videos for that uh there's a company that's sending me like popcorn clusters right now i got a guy out in portland oregon who uh he's a business dude and travels a lot so like he a couple months ago he's like hey i'm going to iceland i'm gonna grab you some candy and ship it off to you like this is this is my life now and so i haven't posted those in a while because i feel like they're so out there but uh and i was i was applying i'm I'm a copywriter and a technical editor and a, a social media marketer by, by trade. So like, you know, if, if I'm applying to some random company and, and they look up Tim Baltus, the first thing they're going to find is my Instagram. And if they see that and they see a guy chowing down on a candy bar, yelling like a maniac, I don't think they're going to want to give me the light of day, but uh, I think uh, fingers crossed here, I'm going to have the type of employment situation I'm looking for here in the next month, month and a half. And uh, as I build that out, um, uh, you bet your butt the the freaking candy reviews are coming back in full force. Excellent. Have you ever had yeah. Saris's chocolate? No. What is that? So Saris's. I live in. Uh, I live just north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and there's a a great chocolate place. It's uh, in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania. It's just south of the city, about 30 minutes from me. But they have uh, it's a chocolate factory that they do all kinds of crazy stuff. Their their headquarters, if you go, there's um, I mean, every room has just castles of chocolate, like very intricately carved houses and figurines. I mean, it's it's like you're in a a toy store that's all chocolate toys. It's crazy. 
everything's wow. for sale and wrapped up. And then there's a lot of like display pieces, but beyond just being like crazy to look at the chocolate is like, I haven't ever tasted chocolate that's better. And I've had the opportunity to live all around the country in a bunch of different places. And I make it a point to like try everything I can when we go and see Sarah's chocolate, man, it's like we load it up. So maybe I'll uh, just send you just so you can have a, have a bite and try it out and check it and see what you think of it. But it's uh, if you're a candy guy and you actually do enjoy it, you're doing yourself a disservice if you haven't had Sarah's. So. How that I know if, if you, if you send that candy bar, I will make a video <laughs> and, uh, and we'll make it happen. So, oh, yeah, man. but yeah, dude, thank you so much for having me on. This is uh this is a cool little podcast and it's fun to talk with, a, you know, what's really fun is it's being able to talk to someone and they're like, Hey, I bet this is how musicians do this. And I'm like, uh-uh, let me open up the curtain and tell you the truth that's that's what's so fun about conversations like these and i think it's it's necessary you know i think especially from understanding how musicians make a living now i think that has become such a a, a tough subject both for musicians and their friends and families because you know with with covid touring fell off and and touring money really is not back to where it was and i don't know if we ever will get there so, you know, just like I am learning to pivot now to, well, I, you know, I really, I don't, I've, I've sold box, I've worked for, you know, corporations where we're selling boxes and material handling equipment and, and the work is fine, but I would really rather sell drums. So, you know, I'm trying to bridge that gap now between corporate experience and um, music, uh, MI experiences, what we call musical instrument uh experience and and try to find something that would be a little bit more enjoyable and and that's going to be the way that i bridge the gap financially career-wise and a lot of musicians are trying to figure out now what skills do i have and how do i glue it all together to make this work so uh i guess if there's there's one message i should leave folks with it's that hey if you got a musician in your life be gentle with them right now and uh you know just try to support them the best you can and because uh, this is this is a tough time. This is a really tough time for us all. That's it's a great way to leave it. I um, I appreciate the time, Tim, and uh, I will definitely send you over some chocolate. And uh, let's uh, let's do this again sometime. I have other things, but I I want to leave it right there because that is a, a great uh, a great way to end this. But thank you much. Make sure you guys go check Tim's stuff out and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend, buddy. Appreciate it. Thank you. You too.